2: A Living History production.
1: This is the Living History podcast. Broadcasting live across the
0: airway. Hello and welcome to Living History, an exciting episode today. We're talking about something that I think is a little bit unexpected. We're talking about soldiers who were trapped behind enemy lines, not during the Second World War, but during the First World War. And I, I tell you what, when I first started learning about this topic, I didn't even realise this was a thing. I didn't even realise that First World War soldiers could become Trapped Behind Enemy Lines. It's an absolutely fascinating subject. To tell us all about it, we've got John Anderson, who wrote a fantastic book about this called Trapped Behind Enemy Lines. And John is one of our great battlefield historians who leads tours for us in France. He lives in the Somme region. He's joining us now on the phone. He's going to tell us all about this fascinating chapter of history. John, thank you for coming on the program.
2: Hi, Mark. How are
0: you? Mate, I'm going really, really well. I'm, I'm looking forward to this subject because... As I said, I I, I was one of the people out there that I'm sure like my listeners who didn't even realise this was a thing. So basically what we're talking about here, the overview is we're talking about British soldiers who early in the war became trapped during the German advance behind those German lines and were harboured by civilians. Have Have I summed that up correctly?
2: Yeah, pretty much so, Matt. I think the first time we discussed this was in a hotel in Gallipoli, if I'm right.
0: I think that was probably right. You've done a lot of research on the topic and... It's, it's just such a fascinating topic. Give us an overview, John. Tell us what period of the war we're talking about and how these men came to be trapped behind the German lines.
2: It was right at the beginning of the war, Matt. Um, from the, the, the Battle of, uh, of Mons, um, the, the, the French were re- retreating from the right flank. The British were being literally overwhelmed eventually uh, with the sheer scale of, of the German advance and they had to start retreating, moving back uh, to try to uh, disengage from the Germans uh, and as they were retreating from Mons um, many were wounded, many were worn out, hungry, tired uh, and some of these guys became separated from their from their battalions. Um, some of them managed to get back to join the battalions, but others became completely separated, lost, tired, wounded, uh, and uh, eventually some of them were captured. Some were taken in by local people.
0: So these are British soldiers who came over to France very early in the war and participated in some of these earliest battles, weren't they?
2: Yeah, these the, these were the uh, the initial wave of uh, of soldiers that came across um, and uh, and fought at the Battle of Mons.
0: Tell me a little bit about the civilians, John, that, that are, will eventually feature pretty prominently in this story. What was life like for civilians under German occupation during the First World War?
2: Well, it, it was pretty tough, Matt, because the Germans had a, a very strict regime, um, particularly in the area that we're going to get to talk about, round right, about the Um It's not that far from uh, the German and British front lines in places like the Somme and Arras and that, that sort of area. Um, so the, the the regime was fairly strict. Uh, the Germans registered everybody. Uh, everybody had to have identity cards. Uh, houses were searched. Um, the Germans would requisition virtually anything they wanted. Uh, they were searching for contraband, any additional food uh, that uh, people may have been storing up. Um, they also actually registered every farm animal. Um, so, every chicken, every cow, every sheep, uh, they they were all kept uh, in a register. And families, farmers weren't allowed to slaughter animals without direct permission from the Germans. So, it was total control. control. The, 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 one of the main problems is, because they weren't that far away from the, the, the battlefield areas, um there were the, the Germans were also concerned that uh, if the the fighting went against the Germans, if the british and the French pushed forward um, you 've got all of these civilians that could rise up and help the uh, help the allies and of course any soldiers that were amongst them were trained soldiers they may still have hidden weapons uh, so the germans were, were were pretty frantic trying to find. Uh, these fugitives that would be hiding behind the lines.
0: How severe was the occupation compared to what we know about the stories of the Second World War?
2: Uh, it, if, well, I suppose it was the same in some ways, but different in many ways. Um, the, uh, the Germans were constantly on the lookout for any kind of smuggling. Or, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. It was a capital offence during the First World War, for any civilian to have a pigeon. To have a it's pigeon? A capital offence. To have a pigeon. The, the Germans were worried about communication between the civilian population uh, and the Allies, uh, and pigeons could be used to send messages. So it was a capital offence to have a pigeon. Now, the French eat pigeons. Many of them had uh, had. So sort dovecots of and places where pigeons would roost, they would breed them, they would use them for food. Um, so it, it was it was quite a big thing. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of, of something that happened. Um, there, there was a guy called uh, Cyril Gott, who was a, a suspected smuggler. So the Germans were keeping a bit of an eye on these people. Uh, and he and his wife Leanne um, The Germans went to their home to have a search for any contraband, and uh, they'd they'd gone on horseback. And as they came back out of the Goss house, Madame Goss saw that the the horses had been chewing at her plants that she'd just planted outside. So there was quite an argument. A row ensued. Uh, The Germans hadn't found anything, any contraband at that stage, but they were getting into a heated situation. As this argument was going on, a pigeon was seen to fly into the loft of this house. So the Germans used that as an excuse. Uh, they arrested them for having pigeons, and they were both executed. They were the first people in in to be executed.
0: It's just shocking. I mean... What was some of the penalties? I imagine the penalties for harboring british men and 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 foreign <laughs> combatants were uh pretty severe by the germans what 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 did the Germans do to prevent civilians from harboring allied soldiers
2: well the, there was regular checks on premises they could come in unannounced and search the property. Um, one of the soldiers I'm going to talk about is a guy called uh, David Cruikshank he was a scotsman he was with the first Cameroonians, the scottish rifles uh, and he was hidden. Uh, by a a lady called Julie Celestine Bodwin and on a number of occasions her property was searched now there weren't just searches that were going on, there was actually German soldiers billeted in the homes of a lot of these civilians they weren't billeted in the Celestine household, the the Bodwin household but there were a number of searches, Uh, one of the searches, the Germans burst in unannounced and the uh, the soldier managed to run up into the loft uh, before they got into the house. Madame Bodwin kind of uh, delayed them as best she could. Uh, he climbed into the loft, and the loft in these houses didn't have any dividing walls in them, so he managed to, to sort of run through the loft, three houses further down the street, and drop down into that house and hid in the cellar while the Germans were there. Um, the Germans insisted on checking the loft they checked every every part of the house. Uh, and in the loft, they found the bed that Troopshark had been sleeping in, together with boxes that were arranged to kind of hide the bed. So they began to question Madame Bodwin, why is this bed here? This is very suspicious. And she had a son called Leon, uh, and she said, Leon likes to sleep here. He's got a bed in the bedroom downstairs, but he's got strange fads, and he he sometimes likes to sleep up here in the loft, Uh, so why are the boxes around him, Uh, and she said, well, sometimes he's a little bit strange, he likes a bit of solitude, he likes to sort of hide himself away, Um, and and she also said, well, you know, I'm hoping that my husband and my eldest son, Jules, both called Jules, uh, might come home on leave, so we've got this like as a spare bed as well, the Germans said, Madame Bodwin, this is very, very suspicious. We're going to keep an eye on you."
0: It's just—it's just an incredible story, John. How did—how did—before we get, um, we're going to talk obviously about individual men because it's just, it's just absolutely captivating some of their tales. But how did you come across this story in the first place?
2: Well, m- my wife and I are, are very keen on visiting brokants, sort of street fairs, bric-a-brac sales, that kind of thing. And we went up to a place called Etap, which was a very famous place during the First World War. There was huge training grounds there. Um, so we went up to this uh, this Brocant Now, the, the French are very canny. If they tell you that it's going to start at 8 o'clock, you need to be there by 6 o'clock because that's when the traders and the dealers are setting up, and, and, and what have you. So be are there about 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, and we are wandering around, and my wife Kathleen got her eye on this thing, and it had the Daily Telegraph written on it. And she thought, that, that's a bit odd in France. Go across and have a look at this thing and see what it is. Um, so I, I sort of tiptoed around all the junk and the, the, the vases and the glassware that were on, on the ground, and I got up to this thing, and picked it up and started to have a look at it. Um just as the dealer got to me, and, and, and in it, my French isn't brilliant, but I more or less understand, it. he said, "This is very rare. It might even be unique." And this one, you So he, he quoted me a price, and while I was trying to think of how to knock them down a bit, how to get a bit of discount, he said, "But for you, I'll do it for however many euros it was. It wasn't very much." Um, So I bought this thing, and it turned out uh, to be a beautifully handwritten, uh, in uh, calligraphy, handwritten and illuminated uh, scroll. And it was saying that this scroll was presented to Madame Julie Celestine Bodwin. It went on to say about how she'd saved a Scottish soldier. There was a, a a beautifully drawn badge of the Cameroonians on it, all beautifully coloured in. Um, But it didn't give the name of the soldier. Uh, So it took a little while for me to work out who the soldier was. And again, it was my wife, Kathleen, that said, can you remember a book called uh, Foreign Field? I think it was called Foreign Field uh, by uh, Ben McIntyre. She said, I'm sure there was some mention of soldiers that were looked after by French civilians in that. In fact, the whole book's about that. We had a copy of it, uh, so we were flicking through the pages and we found this name, Julie Celestine Bodwin, and she protected uh, a soldier called David Crookshank. So that was the start of the research. Um, I got in touch with the uh, Cameroonians Museum in Hamilton. Uh, They were very, very helpful. Uh, and they sent me some documents in French from a, a, a French local history magazine that went out. So I had those um, translated by someone out here, uh, and the story began to unfold. It was about how this young Glaswegian guy um, had joined the army in February of 1914. He'd gone off to, uh, to fight at the Battle of Bonds, uh, and he'd been separated from his regiment, was taken in by Julie Celestine Bodwin and her family. Uh, and then from there, further research led me to other soldiers who had also been trapped.
0: Well, John, let's talk about some of them specifically. Let's talk about uh, uh, Mr Crookshank. He was the first one you mentioned. Just tell us his story. How did he, uh, how did he come to be uh, in, in her care and, and what happened to him during the course of the war?
2: Okay, he he joined the army in February 1914, uh, just a few months before the war was due to start. At that stage, he was just 18 year old, um, and he went off with his battalion uh, to the Battle of Mons, uh, and they came under a pretty heavy fire. Uh, and during the retreat from Mons, he became exhausted and separated uh, from the rest of his battalion. Um, the battalion were falling back. Uh, into a, a place called Lakato um, and to get there, there, there was a, a couple of problems with that area. The ground wasn't great. They were faced with this huge forest of Mormal, uh, so uh, brigades and divisions had to separate and go around this forest. Um, so there was a lot of confusion. Guys, uh, David, it said, was wounded, uh, exhausted, um, and he found himself in uh, in Lakato on the morning of the twenty sixth of august uh, 1914, just as the British army were moving back from Lakato to make a stand uh, just behind there to try to hold the Germans off um, so as David is in the streets of Lakato, the Germans are beginning to occupy the town. the Battle of lakatto is in in full swing. Um, and David's simply lost and alone by now he's just 19 Um, he's only had a a few months of basic training so he's not an experienced soldier and can you imagine what it must have been like to be in the streets of a strange town with groups of Germans occupying the town uh, that literally shoot at anything that moved Um, and David was faced with a group of Germans, he was spotted by a group of Germans who fired at him um, he said, fortunately, most of the bullets missed. I think one grazed him a bit. Um, so he started running down this street. And as he's running down the street, he gets way down the street and another group of Germans block off the bottom end of the street and start shooting at him. So David does the only thing he can think of. He throws himself onto the ground uh, as though he's been shot dead. And he just lies as still as he Fortunately, the Germans were far too busy advancing through the town to worry about checking him. They just thought they'd shot him and he was down. Uh, and as they moved off, um, the, the, there's two stories, or two versions of the story as to how he met uh, Madame Bodwin. Um, the, the first one says that he went to the door of the house where Madame Bodwin was, was sort of looking out of the door to see what was going on, and he pleaded with her. Uh, to take him in uh, to take him in and look after him um she herself her husband and her eldest son Jules were away fighting the war with, with the french forces uh, and she thought if my son should find himself in these kind of circumstances I would want the person that found him to take him in and care for him so that's what she did she took him in Uh, and she started looking after him. The other version, told by David a few years later, was that he ran through an alleyway between the houses and hid in the garden and then worked his way into the cellar of Madame Bodwin's house and he said that th- there was beer on the table, wine and beer, so he, he he was very thirsty so he had a drink and then he heard footsteps coming down into the cellar so he pointed his, rif- his rifle uh, at these approaching footsteps and Madame Bodwin appeared. I don't know what she would have thought having a, a British soldier aiming a rifle at her, but it must have been a scary moment for her. But either way, whichever is true, um, Madame Bodwin took him in. Um, it was a very courageous and dangerous thing to do because, of course, being found to be hiding a fugitive, uh, the rules were very strict, uh, that there was a strong possibility that uh, she could have been executed for hiding this, this British soldier. Uh, but she decided to take him in despite the risks. She cleaned him up. Uh, she tended to his wounds. Um, But he needed a bit more care than she could give him, a bit more medical care to to get him back on his feet. Uh, So there was a local doctor called Pierre Tyson uh, that she trusted with the secret uh, of of David being hidden there. Initially, he was hidden in a little hut at the bottom of the garden that was kind of overgrown with ivy and stuff like that. Um, But eventually, he was brought into the house, and they had a little hiding place built in the, the loft for him.
0: And what happened to him over the, uh, the the course of the next weeks and months, John?
2: After this period of, of, of rest uh, and building his strength up again, um, he, he was going mad in the confines of this small house. Of course, it was very, very dangerous to, to go out into the streets because of the German patrols, uh, because somebody might see him and recognise him and, and you know, realise he's a German soldier. But the, the, they managed to, uh, to, to get him some sort of workman's clothes, And uh, he and Julie Celestine's son Leon, uh, once it was dark, uh, would would go out into the back streets and have a little bit of a wander around just to get some exercise. But this was never going to be enough for David. So, someone had the idea of dressing him up as a woman. He was only 19. Uh, He said he didn't have much of a beard. Uh, He was fairly fresh-faced. So one of the neighbours, a girl called Amy Olivier, had become quite friendly with David, she used to bring him sweets and cigarettes and things, Uh, and it's thought that she had the idea of dressing him up as a woman. So they they got clothes from various places, and a cousin of Julie Celestine Bodwin was a hairdresser, so he managed to acquire a wig. Um, So David got himself all dressed up in these women's clothes and came into the living room where two or three people were, Uh, and he said, What do you think? And Amy said, well, David, you look like a woman, but you act like a man. So she took it upon herself to to teach David how to act more uh, in a much more feminine way, if you like. Hand gestures, head movements, that sort of thing. Uh, And one of the things she did was she got a length of string and tied his ankles together so that he couldn't take a long stride when he was walking and after a period of practice he kind of got into this way of acting in a more feminine way together David and Amy would would go out onto the streets of Lakato first when it was almost dark uh, but then they became more uh, and more brave about what they were doing, more confident in what they were doing Um, and it wasn't unusual for David and Amy to be wandering around the streets of Lakato in daylight just walking past German patrols how long was David harboured
0: by the family for?
2: Well, they took him in on the 26th of September uh, 1914, uh, and it was September of 1916 when he was eventually captured by the Germans. Um, he had been betrayed. Um, David tells a story that when he was running through the streets of Lakato during the Battle of Lakato in August of 1914 he sheltered in a doorway and there was another woman sheltering in the doorway who got a good look at him Um, he calls her Madame D her her true name is not known Um, but eventually when he was out and about uh, and he was kind of known as Mademoiselle Louise um, he was spotted by this woman who knew that he was a British soldier, and she started making romantic advances towards him, if you like. Uh, but David repulsed these advances; he wasn't interested. And at one stage, she shed, she she said to David, "I know who you are. I could I could betray you." A few days went past, and nothing happened. So they thought it was just a, an idle uh, threat of some kind. However, one night, the Germans burst into the Bodwin household, uh, ran straight upstairs into a bedroom where uh, David actually was in bed with Leon. Uh, they were sharing a bed at that stage. Um, they pulled the blankets back off the bed uh, to reveal David lying in the bed. Uh, and they knew they'd caught their British soldier. So David and Marlon Bodwin were taken to... Uh, the cellar of, of a local convent that was being used by the Germans at that stage as a headquarters. They were locked up in the cellar uh, of this convent. Uh, and eventually uh, came the day for a tribunal a court case. They were brought in front of uh, German officers who were acting as judge and jury, effectively. Uh, the evidence was laid uh, before this uh, this tribunal. Uh, and David swore that he'd never left the house; that he, you know, he wasn't a spy. He, he just stayed in the house all the time. Uh, but the, the Germans wouldn't believe wouldn't believe what he was saying. Um, so he was sentenced to death. At this stage, Madame Bodwin, who was who was in the tribunal room, uh, made an impassioned plea uh, to the Germans. She said, "You know, my husband and my son." Are fighting with the French army. I have no word of them. Uh, you know, please don't don't take this young man away from me. Um, the, the Germans went back and checked their records uh, and came back to Madame Bodwin and said, "Well, your husband is a prisoner of war, and your son was killed in September of 1914." So she continued with this. Please, she says, please, please, this war has taken away my son. God has sent me this young Scotsman in his place. Please don't kill him. So they actually commuted his sentence to imprisonment.
0: And what happened to Madame Bodwin herself?
2: Uh, she was she was sent to prison too, a place called Siegborg, um, where there were other women from the district who would, uh, who would been protecting soldiers. They, they weren't treated very well, it was a working prison so you were expected to uh, to work. Um, the, there were rumours that, that uh, the, the prison guards were pretty ferocious. Uh, in fact it said Madame Bodwin lost a couple of teeth when she was being knocked about at one stage. Um, so she was sent to prison for the rest of the war. Uh, David was in, in prison also. Uh, in fact the first his family knew that he was alive, was a photograph of David that was taken while he was in prison. Apparently these prisons had photographers and various other services, uh, and they would sort of barter for, uh, for their services. Uh, and the, the photograph's like a postcard-sized photograph of David in a quite bizarre mixture of uniforms. And uh, a friend of ours, Peter Smith, had a look at this photograph, And he said, yeah, the the photographers worked in these prisons and they would have bits of uniform that they could dress these prisoners up in to make them look more military uh, than, than they would have otherwise. And this photograph was taken in prison and it was sent by David to his family in Glasgow and that was the first word the family had had that he was still alive. Because having gone missing on the 26th of August uh, 1914, David would then have been presumed killed in action. And
0: so presumably he survived captivity and survived the war?
2: Yeah, I mean, the uh, he was released from prison. The war ended, as you know, 11th of November 1918. Uh, but it required quite a bit of effort to uh, arrange transport and, and uh, what have you, for all of these... Uh, prisoners of war, and people who were in prison. Uh, and, and David was released in December of 1918. Um, he had to go back uh, to uh, to Glasgow, to his family and his regiment. Um, and then, I'm not quite sure how he managed to do it, but by February of 1919, he'd made his way back to Lakato. And on the 12th of February 1919, David was married to Amy Olivier, the girl who had dressed him up and who would help to save him.
0: That's absolutely extraordinary. And, and tell me about the rest of their lives. Did they, did they stay in France? Did they go back to England?
2: Uh, well, David uh, started off working for the Imperial War Graves Commission, as it was then. Um, but I think there were some rule changes where there was only a certain number of foreigners that were allowed to work. Uh, in France at, at that time. So he left the uh, Imperial War Graves Commission. And uh, interestingly enough, I've been in touch with a member of his family, a guy called Glenn Cruikshank. Uh That was quite an amazing discussion that Glenn and I had. Um, he, Glenn said that they, they moved to Paris and decided to run a bar. Um, But it didn't work out very well because David was drinking all of the profits. One of the stories that Glenn came up with was that David was quite a bit of a lad and he'd gone out this day and he'd come back to the bar and his wife, Amy, with two lion cubs, uh, which he kept in the house, but Amy said he had to get rid of them because they kept ripping the furniture and tearing the curtains down. Eventually, David wanted to move back to Scotland, so David and Amy gave up the bar and went back to Glasgow, but Amy just couldn't settle there. She didn't like it at all. So eventually, they moved to a place called Stroud or Stroud in Gloucestershire, um, and they lived there for the rest of their lives.
0: John, it's just such an extraordinary story of David Cruikshank. Do we know if he kept in touch with the French family in the years after the war? Uh,
2: yes, he did. He did. Unfortunately, there seems to have been a bit of a falling out uh, between Julie Celestine Bodwin and David Cruikshank um, because she wasn't on the guest list uh, of of the wedding when David and Amy were married. So there's there's been some kind of falling out there. Um, and also another part of the story was a, uh, involves a trip to London a few years after the war. In 1927, in fact, uh, General Louis Spears who was liaison officer between the British and the French, was touring the old battlefields. And somebody told him about these French heroines who had saved British soldiers during the Great War, hidden them and protected them, uh, and how they were now living as paupers. They had nothing, they were in a very poor state, the housing wasn't very good. Um, so Louis Spears got in touch with Lord Burnham, who then was uh, the owner of the Daily Telegraph in London. And Lord Burnham sent a reporter out to interview these women, one of which was Julie Celestine Bodwin. Uh, They printed the stories about these women over a week in the the Telegraph, and there was an incredible response to these stories going out. Um, One of the stories was the story of David Cruikshank and Madame Bodwin, uh, another soldier, Herbert Hull, who had been taken in by the Cardon family and Bertry? Uh, sadly, he was also betrayed, but he was executed. Um, there was the story about Patrick Fowler. Patrick Fowler was an interesting guy. He was hidden in a wardrobe for four years uh, by the Belmont Goldberg family. Uh, he survived the war. Um, But these stories appeared in the Daily Telegraph and the response was phenomenal. People writing in, how can we help these people? So the Daily Telegraph set up a fund, a charitable fund for people uh, to send them money. Uh, And back in those days, they they raised an enormous amount of money. It was something like £3,500, which in 1927 was a lot of money. So the Daily Telegraph decided that they would do something official uh, with these women that with the money that they'd raised, they would buy annuities, pensions for these people, um, and they decided to bring them to London to present them with these annuities uh, so they they came to London in April of nineteen twenty seven and they were faded all over the place. They went to london zoo uh, you know they went to the theater um, and they went to the mansion house in London where they were presented with these testimonials, these beautifully handwritten testimonials by the Lord Mayor of London. Uh, they were given uh, uh, these annuities. Um, Julie Celestine Bodwin and Madame Cardon were awarded the Allied Subject Medal, sometimes known as the Prisoner of War Helbers Medal, and the two Gobert women uh, were awarded the MBE. Uh, at the end of the uh, commemoration, at the end of the trip, they were invited to Windsor Castle to have tea with the king and queen.
0: John, do we know how many men in total were saved by
2: French civilians? No, there's no definitive number. Um, some, some of these guys managed to escape across the border after a fairly short time before the Germans tightened all the controls down. Um, those that were left behind, um, there were 11 soldiers that were being protected by um, Monsieur Chalandra. They were being hidden in an inn, uh, in, in a mill rather, uh, in a place called Yvonne uh, And they were, they were betrayed, uh, and uh, they were captured, and the 11 soldiers and Monsieur Chalondra were executed by the Germans. It's the largest execution, mass ex- execution of uh, British forces in the, in the First World War.
0: Well, John, it's just such a gripping tale, and and, and you tell you know, in much greater detail in your book. Tell us a little bit about the book, Tracked Behind Enemy Lines.
2: Yeah, it's a, a joint effort by myself and a guy called uh, Victor Puke. Um, I've, I've done a fair bit of research on this story, and Vic is a, a former journalist, and... We used to get together and play guitars and mess around. And we would chat about this, this story and these soldiers that were trapped. So Vic just one day said, right, look, why don't we just get our heads down and get this all written down and, and, and get a book written. Uh, so we did, over a period of a couple of years, we did a bit of extra research and and, and got, it, uh, got it published in 2014, I think it was, about six years ago now.
0: Well, it's a fascinating story, John, and uh, people can look out for that book, Trap Behind Enemy Lines, and uh, and to learn more about it because it's just such an interesting chapter of the First World War that we don't know very much about. Thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.